Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Is this the players you vote for it? Captains. It's captains oh. and media and coach. Like I said, idiots. It is Monday, which means it's time for the Front 3 Weekend Review with me, Adam Ball, with the one and only Lawrence McKenna. Good to see you. The man of the legend, Chris Hennage. Evening. I don't really oh. have an intro line from yet, but Nico Morales is here as well. What a what a perfect intro line for yeah. me. I mean, it makes sense. Uh, guys, thanks so much for joining us. It is the Weekend Review. We've got so much to talk about, not least which Tottenham and their momentous victory over Liverpool, which I'm sure Lawrence is delighted to discuss. Um, it could be very interesting. We've also got Chelsea to talk about their win over Watford, 4-2 comeback, but is it just papering over the cracks? We're also going to be talking Arsenal's big win over Everton, 5-2 in the end, which led to Ronald Koeman getting the sack. Is Sean Dyche the right man to replace him? And we'll also be talking Manchester United's first defeat of the season to Huddersfield with Statman Dave in part two. Before in part three, discussing briefly the best awards which happened in London tonight and any other business from over the weekend. There's only one place to start there, Lawrence, and that is Tottenham 4, Liverpool 1 at Wembley. A uh, fantastic game. I was there. The atmosphere, I think it's fair to say, was the best it's been at Wembley so far this season. No surprise. It was, it was a record of attendance. It was. A record Premier League attendance. 80-odd thousand, I believe. Um, but Maradona was one of the many. He was, yeah. The greatest full-time was there. Uh, Harry Kane. Along and Maradona. With Maradona. <laughs> um, but yeah, a fantastic game for Spurs fans. Perhaps not so much for Liverpool, Lawrence. Um, I think it's fair to say uh, Spurs were very efficient. They were very effective. Uh, the way Pochettino set up his team worked perfectly. But Liverpool made it too easy for them. Early on, yeah. I think that it, what was weird was watching Liverpool obviously sail behind. And then when they sort of got their confidence up and things changed a little, then suddenly it all flipped and people suddenly weren't saying the same things they were saying before. And they did look a lot less vulnerable. But then Spurs came back. I mean, most people saying, obviously, Liverpool playing on the counter-attack and that's how they played it. And they wanted to counter on Spurs and... That's how they got the Salah goal, which could have been a scuff shot, could have been a well-placed shot. Um, I think it's great. Uh, and I think, personally. do you really? Yeah, I think. You, I mean, is that charitable? You'd say. Um. Well, again, I, we were saying before the podcast. Basically, I think both managers were playing the odds. Uh, Pochettino, maybe in a slightly more conservative way or a much more confident way, because he had the likes of Harry Kane in form striker. Son knew what he was going to do to him. And I think Liverpool were looking to play the odds, but felt much less confident when rolling the dice. Mm. And then the strange thing was, again, it came down to another defensive mistake. We can talk about Lovren in a second, but it came down to another series of defensive mistakes where, you know, we can talk about the overall system, but ultimately Spurs' third goal was probably the one that forced Liverpool to really have to come on to them and come out in the second half. And honestly, I felt like Liverpool could have scored more than one. I didn't think Spurs... <laughs> looked all that sturdy at the back. It was it was interesting, wasn't it, Nico? I mean, 
I texted uh, the group afterwards and sort of said, you know, I don't think Spurs actually played that well. I don't think they had to, would be the point. You know, they were 2 0 up after 12 minutes. It was a pretty ruthless counter attacking performance in those opening stages. In the second half, though, uh, you know, Pochino came out and said they didn't play particularly well. Perhaps they didn't have to. They were 4 1 up. In that first period, though, they were sloppy in possession. They let Liverpool get back into it. I was quite nervous in that first half before Deli Ali killed the game after yet another defensive mistake, this time from John Matip. But what did you make of it tactically, the way the team's matched up? I think, as Lawrence mentioned, you know, you can look at it in a number of ways. As he mentioned, you know, you can... Both managers did did kind of play the odds, but I think Pochettino was a little bit more conservative. And if you look at the way that Liverpool sort of seeded possession and the way that they seeded possession, I think you can either say that that, that was by design, by Spurs being a little bit more defensive, uh, and Liverpool sort of being naive to that. The, the thing that strikes me uh, particularly about some of the Liverpool goals is how how few players were in defensive positions after one or two, you know, balls or gegenpressing pressing opportunities had been missed. And that, that it's just so strange to me looking at, at the way that, that Klopp has tried to evolve this Liverpool team, how they in possession are still so rudimentary. And I think the, the biggest thing for me is that if you look at some of the ways that Liverpool conceded against Tottenham this weekend, the success that they enjoyed in their pressing actions previous to, to this, we, we talked about a lot and maybe gave a lot of credit to Jurgen Klopp about how he had brought that to the Premier League and he had brought that to Liverpool. But considering now that he doesn't have maybe the, the first 11 players that he would want in all of those situations and they're struggling, I think some of the, the success that they enjoyed through those actions were rather down to the individual abilities of someone like Sadio Mane or Adam Alana, as opposed to anything that he was doing. Because if you look at how some of the most efficient teams who press do it, you know, they try to pressing is, is a gamble. And like Lawrence mentioned, they, they play the odds. But I think as a manager who wants to perpetuate that kind of action, you have to try to maximize the opportunity and, and the chance that you're going to come up positive in that situation. And Do you not think that's seeing... where his frustration comes from then? So that's where the frustration with someone like Lovren comes from because the coaching keeps happening and other players in, previously in his career have cl- clearly reacted very well to that coaching. But someone like the two examples you give react very well to that kind of coaching. And right. his frustration comes from players who seem to not be able to master that or have an attitude which won't be able to master that. that now, should they not be there? Though, These players shouldn't be there. Well, I mean, to some extent, I think you're right. I don't know whether um, people... It's a very interesting... I, I, I see the point that Nico is making here, and I think is it, it, to some extent it's relevant. But I think with Klopp, he, as much as he said, I'm the normal one, he comes across as actually someone who does need quite exceptional circumstances to operate in. And so when you look at the opposite of that, which is how exceptional Dortmund felt and how exceptional his Dortmund team felt, how exceptional Liverpool want to feel. Um, and I'm speaking from a perspective of someone who's always wanted a previous manager back or wanted a more sturdy system and was always a little sceptical of when Klopp first came in. Not that I don't like Jurgen Klopp, but that I didn't always appreciate everything that he bought. So I, I guess for me, the frustration comes from, I, I, I see what, what you're saying, Nico, but at the same time, I don't, I feel like 
you're coming from a perspective of he should be playing a different kind of football or maybe this is a better way of doing this. And actually, I feel like Klopp's operating and his frustration massively must have come from something with Lovren. It can't just be, he's not uh, he's not so petty like people seem to be making out that he's like, well, I'll teach him a lesson and sub him off here. There, there yeah, must I be don't some think sort of frustration here. I don't think the substitution was down to him being, you know, not pleased with his performance because for me, the, you know, the first goal was, was not his fault. I well, think that's sort of the point is that I'm trying to make is that, you know, as, as you, if you rewatch the goals, you know, the, the my issue with the, the, the aggressive pressing system that, that Jurgen Klopp so consistently like relies on almost as like a crutch is that if you look at Manchester city, if you look at Napoli, these teams off the ball, they don't have a defensive formation. They don't sit back and try to provoke mistakes in certain situations and teams who do that teams who uh try to perpetuate a really aggressive playing style they do so like i said by maximizing the 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 efficiency of those pressing actions and for jürgen klopp i think he's come to a point where he he thinks it's he or he not necessarily he thinks but he he depends on that tactic to work so much that it's putting players in really difficult situations and he's not necessarily doing anything to fix it. This issue has been there for a long time in his teams from the beginning. And I think his inability to lean on anything outside of that, is, especially when he knows that he's going to have to play players that aren't necessarily the best in those situations, is backwards to me because... Why, if he knows that that, that this this kind of tactic isn't the best anymore, and is it he shouldn't use it so frequently, or he should reel it in or adjust it in some way, shape, or form? Because as you mentioned to me before the pod, analysis and especially tactical analysis can be extremely prescriptive. But at the same time, why is he leaning on this tactic so much if he knows it's not going to work in these I, ways? I I absolutely agree, and that's that's where my frustration comes. Is I see a lot of people online saying things like this is what he should do here's how he should play and i think i mean to some extent it's very easy to stand on the outside and sort of say well you know he, he's he's a he's a rudimental manager very simplistic some people might say this is other people being vindicated people who have been expecting this of Jurgen Klopp um, and to some extent i expected it myself because i knew the way that liverpool fans would react to certain things They've been trained very much during the Rafa Benitez era to not gamble with the odds, but to appreciate when certain areas of gambling happen. So then under the the Rogers era, they were almost uh, uh, molded into the whatever Rogers wanted the fans to be at that time because they realized they might have won the title. And at this point, I think Liverpool were looking for something else. And I think they still there is still a lot of faith in Jurgen Klopp. I think it's right. There's a very reactionary sort of knee jerk online with Twitter but I think a lot of people still do have faith that he can enact these things and can uh, there will be some sort of end to this the goal that he's looking mm. to uh, achieve there is still faith clearly in, in Jurgen Klopp Chris but he finds himself in a difficult moment right now Liverpool only one win in the league in their last five games they're 12 points behind Manchester City now and there are these question marks over him of course we've talked to death about the defensive issues um, potentially player recruitment in the summer as well. The, uh, the problems there are clearly evident now in the makeup of the squad and the shortcomings there. This is a testing period for him now, isn't it? Because if he can't get Liverpool out of this hole, those questions are only going to intensify, Chris. He's, he's been there two years now, so he's, he's had, you could argue by modern standards, a decent amount of time. 
Um, certainly, I don't think he'd get, let's say, the the length of time that that Sir Alex Ferguson needed to to start off his um, his historical run of, of titles and, and successes. I think honestly, it boils down to loyalty with with Klopp, and it's it's two key facets of that um, trait, which is loyalty to players that he inherited that are letting him down. Um, you look at sort of Dejan Lovren's a good example, Alberto Moreno, and it's admirable that he tries to coach through these things. You could argue it's almost a very German approach, whereas in England we do like to throw money at problems. I think there comes a point where you have to say Dejan Lovren, Alberto Moreno, and players in that squad are not fit for purpose for what he wants to do. They don't work in the same way that that Dortmund squad did, so you have to jettison them. You can't just keep almost accepting that there's these flaws in the individuals when it keeps costing you games like this. I also think his loyalty to his ideas needs to be tested and needs to be held up to some kind of scrutiny internally in terms of him looking at it and going, okay, this this way that we have played with the gig and pressing, with, with that kind of style, are there other ways that we can hurt opponents? Do I need to develop new ideas for the players so that we have a little bit of flexibility and that buzzword that we've thrown around, sort of, I would say, since Conte arrived, which is pragmatism? Because I think you look at, I think you look at Conte and Poch, and I'll I'll say this quickly so Lars can can jump in. You look at those two. I'd say they've both got pragmatism, and it's one of the reasons why, even though they haven't spent huge huge sums like the Manchester clubs up there, but not as the same they're still able to get a decent level of output. Is that... I was just going to say, Lawrence, is, is, is the war if you that um, Chris almost draws the comparison there between Pochettino and Klopp, which you know uh, you could take question with, but at the same time, uh, I think at this time last season, they were seen on a, they were seen on a similar level, Liverpool and Tottenham, um, although it didn't really work out in the end. They were seen on a similar level in terms of how they could compete. And yes, they just demonstrated how far apart these teams potentially are. Potentially, but then what, what was the score between Liverpool and Spurs last season? Uh, I think we got beat. Was it two, was it two, three, one at home at Anfield? Yeah. Something so like I don't think there's. Any I mean, game. yeah, I the individual that, results, of course. Of, but I'm talking about overall trend. Of the game. Yeah, I mean, it's partly reflective of the way that Liverpool are playing right now. I think uh, you obviously. He's, I don't think he's had a win in seven games now, or he's drawn six of the last seven. Some ridiculous stuff like that. Uh, and that's obviously reflected the, the way that he shaped the team at the moment. I do think there are elements of disruption within the squad. I, I, you know, you can't just question uh, d- exclusively Klopp over this. You know, there have been problems with Lovren. For some reason, it was unusual uh, that he came came out and spoke about the, the taking drugs to be able to get on the pitch. He was sent home from the international squad. Um, Emery Chan has made some particularly unusual comments recently. Coutinho seems again unsettled, doesn't seem to be playing to his best. For some reason, we still seem to be focusing on him. Maybe you could go down the admirable route again. My faith is tested in Klopp. At the same time, I guess it just seems a little like the analysis is very simplistic in a way of he's not doing it right, therefore he must change it. Um, And here's how I think he should change it. And I think... Uh, especially when it comes down, what was the quote you said the other day? It was something along the lines of, "I could, if I was defending on the pitch in my trainers, I could have done, I could have <laughs> defended." Was that, that, that the first goal or the second but goal? He said I that goal wouldn't well, have happened. I, I think it's the first goal. I think it's reflective of again his frustration with the fact that we're talking about maybe he's relying too much on those players. 
you know, maybe we criticise Wenger for the same thing sometime. Or, you know, you have faith in those players that they can at least do your game plan to a sort of a rudimental um, point. Maybe there's elements of that in this, that he's expecting the players to be able to do these very simple things or things that he considers to be very simple. And when they're not doing them, that's when his frustration comes. Because it's mm. not, I think there are times where he has accepted the system has been his own issue. And then there are times where the frustration with Lovering comes through and he you know, he's turning to his assistant or he's turning to the bench and sort of saying, I can't believe why, why has this happened? And it's very all well and good saying, but your system, Jürgen. But I guess time after time, there have been individual mistakes within there where you think, well, what do we do with that then? How, mm. how can you account for that? So many, how can you account for <laughs> so many that has but, to come back. And, to and, people, and people's, well, yeah. And people sort of say, well, yeah, maybe you're putting pressure on your defense, but then there have been, so for instance, uh, there's a few times where players have made unneeded individual mistakes, which haven't been systemic. They've been literally to do with that player not clearing it in the correct way or however you want to say. Um, and at the same time, I'll, I'll say the same thing. I think Liverpool could have scored three on Sunday and it would be 4-3 and we'd probably still be speaking about it in a similar way. But I think it still, to me, it seems like there's more to it. And I, I, I think Klopp, Klopp has much more to give and I think he will give a lot more. I think it's probably very short-sighted to sort of talk about sacking a manager who uh, is at this point with this team. I think if people start talking about him losing the dressing room, I still think then you'd even have a problem because of the promising future that Liverpool have with the likes of Cater coming in January oh. and maybe, uh, or even the end of the season and maybe even Coutinho leaving then. And I do wonder about those disruptive elements and how difficult they've made life at Liverpool or how different how much that's changed the focus it might sound like excuse making but I mm. guess I'm looking for something a little bit more than just what the newspapers are writing and reflecting on well, well I of, think oh go on go on again well yeah no I was just going to say I think Chris made an interesting point when he said that um you know I think what specifically to what Lawrence is saying you know we were sort of hearing the same things about Guardiola last season uh, in the sense that you know people said you know he needs to depart from his ideals and he needs to do things a little bit differently and he's not necessarily playing and he hasn't necessarily departed from his ideals this season i think he just has the players who are able to perpetuate a a different style and and i would make the argument that the 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 difference really in, in style between this season's manchester city and last season's is very similar it's just that he's allowed to be the formation and the players and everything that they're allowed to do is allowed to be a lot more dynamic which is more suited to the premier league because of the athleticism that we are now able to hold uh in the fullback position which is really the fulcrum of any side and so i i just you know shift this question to the podcast, I guess, which is, you know, if Jurgen Klopp does receive maybe the same financial backing or the same player backing that someone like Pep Guardiola has or someone like Jose Mourinho has in their ability to, you know, better perpetuate the ideas that they have in terms of the football that they want to play, do we talk about it in the same way? And and does that make it, I mean, what 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 do we make of the solution then? Is is, is it okay to, to do that? I think it becomes a lot easier. I, I mean, there is, there's also the statistics have been floating around somewhere on Twitter today that Liverpool have overall spent 12 million on their defence over the last two, three seasons. And uh, Man City have spent 180 million. And I'm not saying spend is directly reflective because there are players in there that are Joe Gomez. I also think the analysis is incredibly flat of people saying, I think Jamie Carragher's point about three of the back four being from the uh, Brendan Rodgers era is very one-dimensional because 
you know, Joe Gomez was clearly a talented young player who was signed for the future, whether that would be another manager or whatever. Um, Moreno was signed from another club where he was much more promising. So you'd say, well, at least give him some time to be able to perform within that mold. And Lovren, I mean, look, you know, as much as he's a, a centre-back going through a crisis of confidence, it doesn't mean he's not a centre-back. Um, Do you think? I, I think you've hit the nail on the head a little bit there, though, with the spend. When you talk about City spend, because there's two things that jump out at me there. First and foremost, Lovren and players in his position, they have no fear of someone taking their spot. Because they, they obviously sold Sacco in the summer. Mm. I get that. It was a nuisance. You had to sell him. Go and buy someone. If you can't buy Van Dijk, find a contingency or, yeah. or do some due diligence that you've got backup options. Because if there's one thing I've noticed... It's the, a player in Lovren's position, whether he's having nightmares every week or not, if he's got nobody challenging him legitimately, it's not going to make him any better because he needs to feel yeah, that pressure of someone could come and take my spot and leave and, and I'll be sat on the bench for a good long while. And that's yeah. that's the problem. I think the complacency sits in at that back four because you've only got Milner who can play left back, but he's not a left back. And you've and you've really pushing it to find a centre back who isn't Dejan Lovren. Yeah, but do you really think that Dejan Lovren's ability and and sort of his uh, his performances, you know, increase in quality? If you know there is the danger of someone taking his spot, I think the, these players, especially at this level, want to achieve things with their club. They have aspirations for Liverpool Football Club in terms of a title challenge or some Champions League success or something. So they want they have the intrinsic, uh, you know, need or the they have the intrinsic want and motivation to achieve and to do that the best they can. I don't think they necessarily for do me, that because of I'm not saying it becomes Franco Baresi. I'm not saying that, but what I'm what I'm yeah, saying that's is definitely not. <laughs> These these All right, mate, these up. constant sort of mistakes and <laughs> and and like the the complacency is the best word I can think of, it, and it's that notion of when you've got say two three good goalkeepers they all keep each other on their toes, they all keep kind of whereas you if do you some of those as well I'm going to be think- playing next week whether I've been at, at fault or not. That is going to breed a, uh, a complacency. Think, I mean, there, there, there is there is sort of evidence to back up elements of what Chris is saying. I don't know why Lovren got sent home from international duty, but he's had those issues before on a personal level. It would be unusual. I mean, Klopp would definitely struggle if uh, he lost lost Lovren's backing. But maybe as well, if it, uh, put it this way, a lot of people want to put a manager inside a box, and I know that we're probably guilty of this on the podcast. And it comes down to when we want to defend our own interest or the manager that we think is particularly appealing in the Premier League, then maybe we'll change our view a little bit. But go with it for a second. If if this was Man- Mourinho, Mourinho subbed a player after 30 minutes, we go, that is bloody brilliant. He there has played a masterstroke to motivate well, this know, player. I don't know about Mourinho. <laughs> No, no, but you know, you know what I'm saying. When he I mean, slammed you know, Luke Shaw were... last season, we sort of, uh, we sort yeah, of gave there, him there, criticism for that. And, but and we absolutely gave him criticism, and because he he was definitely he overstepped a few personal boundaries in some people's opinion. Um, and you know, there were the parody headlines of Jose Mourinho calls Luke Shaw a giant twat or something like that to motivate him. <laughs> bad. And I get that, but say that it was say it was Pep Guardiola, say it was any manager, people there would be someone out there who would argue. This is excellent psychology. This is the thing I was going to say to you, Lawrence. Do you not think, I understand what Chris is saying about the recruitment. For me, I'd say the issue is not necessarily buying players for 
uh, to provide competition for the likes of Dejan Lovren, he perhaps should have been replaced. This is Jurgen Klopp having too much faith in these sort of players. Is this not a good thing, him substituting Dejan Lovren, albeit a humiliation to do it in the 30 minutes uh, of the game? But it shows a tough streak, and it's almost as if this tough love approach has been what's needed. It's arguably, and I'd suggest perhaps overdue. It shows that, yes, he can yeah. make the hard decisions, and that's something that he needs to do right now. I guess what I'm fast coming to the conclusion of in the press is actually, and especially in the podcasting world as well, is it's very easy to paint it one way or the other. We can, because actually, and the great thing is we don't know, so we can theorize either way. And someone will call Nico an idiot, someone will call me an idiot in the replies. And uh, it, 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 to some extent, is serving the press to have those sorts of visceral reactions where they go, this guy has gone way too far. And then they write their reasonable piece the next day. We all know those sensationalist journalists who have crap banter on Twitter. No idea what they're talking about in terms of getting close with players, but have one story about a player they once knew when they, he seemed motivated. And then they apply that onto every other player. The fact is Klopp is quite a unique manager in that he does have a lot of very unique characteristics of the way that he manages players. But he's also unique in the sense that he is somewhat of an outlier in the management community. So as much as he's a nice guy, he seems to have good relationships. There are other managers, especially Mourinho, etc., who are very critical of him because they don't agree with his techniques. And sometimes you can imagine that if you hear elements of dissent within that, and especially you've got to admit there are elements of dissent from outside Liverpool at the moment, Barcelona, I mean, imagine those sort of overtures being made towards someone that must in some way change the way that you see the people you're playing with. The same with the Juventus and Emre Chan. There are elements within this club right now, which I think aren't wholeheartedly behind Jurgen Klopp. And there are, I, I always go back to the same example of Martin O'Neill at Aston Villa. The first player left and other people began to have their head turned as well. And I think there are still elements of this Klopp squad, which seem very dedicated to what Klopp is trying to do. But they're just not all there. And I don't think that's just a starting eleven. I think that comes down to people like Mane. I think that comes down to people like Lallana as well. And Henderson is maybe a, a, an unusual player for Liverpool overall. There's, uh, let's put it this way. Henderson's not uh, enacting the press in the way that maybe Klopp would prefer always. Yeah. It would be great cover. if Henderson was not the captain right now. Yeah. We've fallen into that trap, haven't we, Nico? When a big team is defeated, we only talk about them and why they've lost. We fail to focus on the winning team. And Spurs, although, as I said earlier, they didn't necessarily play amazingly. They didn't have to. It was an efficient and effective performance. 38% possession, I believe. And as we've discussed, Liverpool did play into Spurs' hands. But were you impressed by what you saw from Riccio Pochettino and his side in this game? They were they were really good, I think. And and that's sort of some of the things that we were talking about is, you know, playing the odds or was it by design? And I, I think it was by design from Pochettino to to sort of provoke some of the mistakes that Liverpool made in possession. Um, and that's really the intelligent thing that we're seeing different about Tottenham this season. And I almost have to ask myself why, because I think in seasons previous and in games previous, for everything Pochettino has done to elevate the expectation and performance of Tottenham Hotspur, you have you look at some of the bigger games, some of the cup games against Chelsea come to mind, or some of the bigger games in the league, and you think, why weren't they a little bit more conservative? Why did Pochettino do this, that, and the other? And I've come up with a little theory, um, and I think it's it's really because you know Tottenham have this peculiar peculiar position in the last few years of being you know title hopefuls to some extent and being within the mix of the of the title race, certainly closer than any other team. Um, in a couple seasons, 
uh, bar the one that obviously won the title. But I think the reason he's done this is because he knows that if he puts the onus of creation, if he puts the onus of possession and, and being sort of the quote-unquote better team on his players, and that's what he's done over the past couple of years, and that would make them better as a possession team. That would make them a better team overall because really how you win the league isn't by beating the top six. It's by beating the 14 other teams that you have to play more often than you play teams that are technically better than you or equal to you in quality. And so... That's what we've seen from Pochettino and Tottenham is that they can destroy the likes of, you know, Stoke or or whoever in the mid table because they've been so good in possession and they have that possession ability. But they also have a big game sort of game plan where they can either press you to death or be defensive like they were against Liverpool. And I think Pochettino has been storing this in the locker, not because you know he couldn't do it before but because he knew he was making a making his Tottenham squad a better team by forcing them to do things that they were going to be uncomfortable with previous to this and he escaped sort of the the major criticism that a traditional big club would because you know even if Tottenham don't win the title or don't win a trophy nobody has really expected them to over the past couple seasons but you know now he has this dynamic game plan that he can go back and forth depending on the opposition mm. they're perhaps expected to now let's say um but perhaps they're ready now as you say they've perhaps got the players there uh, the recruitment again this summer has proved to be uh, pretty astute and like you say he's got that flexibility he's got that adaptability um in those big games which is where spurs have potentially stumbled in previous seasons it's interesting we'll see we'll see where it finishes up i think all of a sudden spurs are now in that title conversation where there were those doubts at the start of the season so it's exciting to beat a team like liverpool so comprehensively they can only bode well for the rest of the season it's going to be interesting to see how they come up against manchester united of course this weekend we'll talk about that a little later on um listen we do have to talk about uh, other football teams and other games no as mate well. sorry uh, this is going to wrap there was another uh, merseyside uh, team in action as well of course everton losing 5-2 to Arsenal at Goodison Park, which ultimately, Chris, ended in the sacking of Ronald Koeman earlier today. Um, it did look like he was going to take charge of the League Cup game midweek. But in the end, Fahad Mashiri swung the axe. Sean Dyche, apparently, in talks now of the club, potentially set to come in at Everton. I mean, it's hard to disagree with this decision. Koeman showed no signs that he could turn around this arresting slump, did he, Chris? No, not even close. Even a shave didn't do it for him. Um, <laughs> I, th- I think, yeah, you, you look at them and look, it's so easy to just lump it all on Coleman and say that he's the problem. I think you can look a little bit backwards now and say, okay, well, was he as good at Southampton as maybe people thought he was? Was it more the infrastructure that helped propel him to a position that uh, that he succeeded in? I looked at his, his finishes with Feyenoord before, before we recorded sort of second I think he was second third and second so he did fairly well in what is usually a competitive um, league at the top with with PSV and and Ajax it's usually those two um, there or thereabouts at the top two I think what struck me most was just how one-dimensional this squad was Um, yeah okay I know that the the Lukaku money offsets a lot of the summer business in terms of spend but to buy what I would say three number tens in Wayne Rooney, Davy Clarkson, and Gilfie Sigurdsson for what is, what, 80 million in fees and then probably a few hundred thousand each, uh, not each, excuse me, together in in wages. 
that's just crazy. That is because they're all so one-paced as well. Like Clarson's not the most mobile. Sigurdsson the same. And you look at t- any time a coach has tried to shift him out wide, it's not really gone well. His best work is done as a number 10 behind a striker. That's where he came to prominence for Swansea when he first joined them on loan. Um, and Rooney is, yeah, I get the emotional thing, but like with all that said, he's he's a player that really doesn't have much positional discipline. He wants to roam. He wants to do these things that he shouldn't do. And it just seemed like a recipe for disaster from, from mm. minute one. I think you, you put those together... And then mix in the fact that didn't replace Lukaku, be it in terms of like actual Premier League goals scored with the players they brought in, or as actually a recognised number nine. It meant they were shoving Umani Ass out there, who Coleman had previously said, you know, he's going to have to go somewhere else if he wants to play football. And I think you could argue that that one situation where he's relying on Nias to keep his job at one stage in the season, that is a microcosm for the the, the lack of organisation that Everton have had probably these last 12, 18 months. Mm, I mean, uh, it's clear, as Chris has suggested in Enica, that the squad is very imbalanced after that summer transfer window, despite the biggest spend ever for Everton in uh, in a transfer summer. Uh, Phil McNulty, who's the chief sports writer for the BBC, suggested that they put all their eggs in the Olivier Giroud basket. It didn't exactly pay off from leaving them with this Lukaku hole up front. But regardless, uh, Koeman's looked out of his depth almost this season, having been reasonably assured last season. Yeah, and I think they fell, Everton being they, they fell into sort of a similar trap that, that other teams who have sold, you know, immense players in the past have, which is, you know, you sell one player and you try to replace him with 15 others when the reality you know, is if you look at other clubs that have recovered from selling really big players or even coaches like somewhere like Southampton, which I think, you know, I've said on this podcast many times, I don't really value Ronald Koeman as a manager. He had failed previous, um, you know, to his time in England. And, and I think he's a very average manager that really only gets better if he spends more money. And that was kind of the recipe for, for Everton. But given where their squad is and was previous to when he got there, there was a ton of money that needed to be spent intelligently, and he clearly didn't do that. And I think more than anything else, more than buying a specific player, whether it be Gilfie Sigurdsson for uh, X amount of money or whatever, they needed a, a style of play to attach sort of the, their ambitions to. And Ronald Koeman never really seemed to nail one down. And in fact, centering a team around an aging Wayne Rooney that really hasn't been that good to begin with for the past couple of years was always sort of a recipe for disaster. And I think if you look at sort of how they played in the past couple of weeks, piling all this pressure onto Idris Gay to do certain things, like if you look at the game this past weekend, it's clearly Ronald Koeman's fault that he got a red card because he was putting him in difficult midfield situations where he had to be making this sort of tackles because if not the, their back four or back five or however they had been lining up in the past couple of weeks was going to be, you know, at risk, especially because of the players that currently play in that. So everything that he had sort of done with that Everton side just kind of screamed that he had no idea what he was doing. And yet they seem so secure in their quest for quote-unquote top six or top four ambition because they had spent money they needed to spend money intelligently and they needed to attach that to a style of play that was going to be realistic for this for the players that they had they could have made one or two of the transfers that they paid that they made in this last summer and been far more successful if they just had a more consistent style of play and yet 
they didn't. Mm. I mean, it's interesting to see what will be next for Kuman. I think when he moved to Everton, it was seen as a, a curious move, almost a sideways move from Southampton. Obviously, Everton is clear have a bigger budget and bigger ambitions. Kuman wasn't the man to fulfil those, and you can't help but feel he's further away from what he's publicly said is his dream job at Barcelona uh, to be the manager there. It doesn't seem like it's happening anytime soon. But what do you think is next for Everton, Lawrence? A lot of names linked with the job. Uh, Carlo Ancelotti, for one, um, although he insists he's taking a sabbatical till next summer. Uh, Thomas Tuchel is another name linked. Eddie Howe and Sean Dyche, perhaps the front runner. The odds were slashed on him today, and some reports are saying that he's already in talks with the club. It would be interesting. I mean, I'd certainly be interested to see what someone like Sean Dyche would do with that squad. Some people still saying it's not particularly weighted towards what any manager would want to do because of it, some of the acquisitions that they made. Um, but they need to find someone. And you'd say that they would have gotten rid of uh, someone uh, like Kuman with at least a few people in in the frame for what they wanted to do. Um, Ancelotti would be an unusual one because Ancelotti, well, like you say, sabbatical and um, yeah, also he, he tends to come in with this yeah, kind of a system. Certain clubs, I'd say, he, he takes over the elite. I wouldn't say well, Everton. Well, you'd, you'd also say why? Why is Ancelotti? Would you take up that challenge if there is there isn't really much to gain from it? Um, there's Tuchel maybe is a good one, but that's a very disruptive presence to bring into the dressing room. Um, maybe not the worst thing, but he also then doesn't have the players that he probably wants to enact the game plan that he wants to play. So then you've got to think, well, they're going to have to look within the Premier League. But then do you, I mean, does Sean Dyke, I mean, maybe Sean Dyke sees that as a step up. Mate, I'd say is so. he really going to be able to take it much further than he can take Burnley? I suppose he possibly could, but I suppose that he's going to have more spending power come the end of the season. Yeah, I mean, Chris, would you say he could potentially be the answer? He'd certainly make them more solid, I'm sure. Stop them making goals every single game. Uh, I think I think took Thomas Tuchel, if I'm saying that correctly, um, he's a good shout. The problem is I don't think it's in his radar because he could get a better job with the greatest of respect to, to Evan. And I know people, someone said recently that I'm always being patronised when I say that, but I'm genuinely <laughs> not. I just think that he's got like Champions League offers, which are a lot more stable for him having left Dortmund. So I do think um, patronising it would be a... a a lot of work and a lot of risk, which is always not a good idea when, when you leave a club like uh, Dortmund. <laughs> Sean Dyche is an interesting one because I, I was listening to Five Live tonight and they were saying how actually you know, he's probably a little bit underrated. You look at that 24-pass goal they scored the other week. Um, I'm just not sure if he builds them any further than they want to go or or. or or any further than where they've been already, because that's the thing. It's just it's just very difficult to to jump into that um, new sort of bracket of the top six, if you will. And when I look at Dice, he does remind me slightly of Sam Allardyce when he left Bolton, because everyone looked and said, you know, look what he's done with with such mega budgets, and look how he's eked out these last few drops of talent from aging stars like Akotcha and Jokaev. Like he'll be great for anyone. But then you look at it and you think, well, no, like that was his wheelhouse. That's new. That's what he knew how to do. And when you gave him, when he went to his next club and he had money, he spent like six million on Alan Smith, which was not a very good idea. He brought in Kashapa from uh, Leon, and 
it it just felt like he was trying to meld new ideas with a lot of the the old ideas that had bring him success. Whereas I think if you're going to take a club like Everton to the top six, I don't know how many of the skills you develop at a club like Burnley, who just want to try and be solid and stay there, mm-hmm. transition over. Um, to a club like Everton that have these big aspirations and need to start punching above the weight and, and knocking you know seven bells out of the the established top six or top five. Well, Ryan Giggs has expressed his interest. You know, maybe he learnt what it, what it takes from Sir Alex Ferguson. I'm sure Everton fans would be delighted if Giggs pitched up at Goodison Park. Um, we do need to move on though. Uh, mm-hmm. We're running out of time. Nico, talk to me briefly about Arsenal because I saw some Arsenal fans seeing this as a potential turning point for the Gunners playing that front three. Great podcast for the first time for Arsenal. Meza Ozil, exceptional, albeit, let's admit, against an Everton side at their lowest ebb. Yeah, I would really focus on the the latter part of that sentence there. I mean, they they played well, but, you know, we've received criticism uh, about talking about Liverpool, um, even when they win, sort of in a negative light because of the some of the issues that some of the people on this podcast have been able to, to see, even when they perform positively. And I think the same goes for Arsenal, because sometimes, even against Brighton and some of these lesser sides, you see some of the, some of the holes in their system and how... There are certain like joints and pressure points in the Arsenal formation and the way that they play football that, you know, in a more intense game against better opposition that knows how to target those pressure points, they're just going to collapse. So I think this isn't a game that signifies really anything for Arsenal. I mean, they'll be as good as Arsenal have been for the past couple of years. They'll beat the majority of the teams that they'll probably get beat by the majority of the top six, except for, you know, one or two on a bad day. And I really wouldn't put much into this result if I were an Arsenal fan, because even though it was nice to see Mesut Ozil and Alexis Sanchez and, uh, you know, Alexander Lacazette who haven't played together all that much, I just, Specifically speaking to to you know Alexis Sanchez and how he may or may not come to Manchester City, I really don't see how he fits in because he so consistently makes the wrong decision on the ball. He so consistently is lackadaisical when he wants to be, but not lackadaisical when he doesn't want to be off the ball. So uh, he's an extremely frustrating player for me, and maybe one that sums up Arsenal perfectly. Hmm. We need to see more evidence, I'd say, um, of Arsenal against uh, different teams before we start saying they're back in the race for the top four or the title race or anything like that. Um, let's move on to part two. Let's talk Manchester United, who suffered their first Premier League defeat of the season this weekend at Huddersfield. So Dave joins us now, packing up his life ahead of moving to Manchester. Dave, how's the, uh, how's the packing going? Oh, I fucking hate packing. You're gonna have to bleep that, Adam. I just, I just gonna have to show the listeners how much I hate packing and loathe it. It's not it's fun, one of the worst it? things in the world. Oh yeah, it's it's a complete ball ache. I do not envy you whatsoever. Um, <laughs> let's talk about Manchester United, though, Dave. Um, a disappointing weekend for them. A two-one defeat to Huddersfield on Saturday. Their first league defeat of the season. Oh, what went wrong? I don't, this is the thing. Huddersfield played really well. And I feel like the what's been going on at the moment is that it's always, you know, team, big teams that lose. We never talk about the smaller teams. I know Lawrence is going to love this. He loves talking about the smaller teams like Liverpool. Um, but I thought they played brilliant. I thought they were really, really good. I thought they were they were slightly different than they played previously against Spurs, against you know other teams in the Premier League. You know, they usually set up sort of a, a four four one one. They press quite aggressively in a four four two. It was a change. You know, against United, it was more a four five one, which I found really interesting. 
So this was not Manchester United or Mourinho's fault. This was all just because Huddersfield were the better team. Don't get me wrong, you know, it did do some wrong things. But what I, what I mean with that, you know, the three-man midfield, it was very difficult for Huddersfield to play through Manchester United the way around. Just fine, I'll let it out. Go on. <laughs> Sorry. It was very difficult for Manchester United to play through Huddersfield. Their three central midfielders were nice and compact. They played it in sort of a medium block, so they were near the halfway line. The defence was nice and high. The defence went man for man. They, you know, For example, if Anthony Martial tried to drop and pick up the ball, the full-back would go with him. I thought it was a great approach from David Wagner. Not as aggressive as usual, but it had better results in a way. You think about the triggers that Huddersfield play to. They play on square passes. They play on when players receive the ball uh, with a back to goal. But they also play on bad touches, and that's exactly what happened for the goal. It was fantastic from Huddersfield. If you look at the shape of Huddersfield in that move, they have 10 players behind the ball. De Potra, the striker's working back. He's working really hard. Ashley Young plays a real terrible pass. Go back and watch that pass again. It, it's like it bounces. Instead of being along the ground and, you know, uh, Matt can receive it, you know, receive an easy pass, it bounces. It comes up just before it reaches one matter. And, of course, it goes to his right foot, which is weaker. Then he takes the bad touch. Huddersfield counter, Huddersfield break. And it's a, it's a great sort of pressing, counter-attacking goal. And I think David Wagner has to take the plaudits for that goal. Yeah, Aaron Moy is a wonderful player. I think he's done so well in the, the move up for the Premier League. He's taken the challenge and he's been Huddersfield's best player. But it's all about a systematic approach from, from Huddersfield that is so impressive and works so well against Manchester United. They couldn't find a way through them. You know, the thing with United, you mentioned how they didn't play well. There were a few things that went a bit wrong there. I think United, in terms of the selection, was more of a rotation because there were players that were sort of tired. You know, Henrik Mkhitaryan's hit a bit of poor form in terms of attacking uh, recently just because I think he's played so many games. You know, um, you know, had Jess Lingard out there, but there was no one that was operating sort of in between the lines, and that was a big problem for Manchester United. Mm. What did you make of Jose Mourinho's post-match comments that, you know, it was the attitude of his players that disappointed him most, that this was the worst performance of his 15th-month reign at the club? Would you agree with that? I didn't think it was. Yeah, I think it was poor. It, it really stunk of Lou Van Gaal. It really, really stunk of Lou Van Gaal. I was sort of thinking today, actually, like, Lou Van Gaal did so much wrong for the football club. Lou Van Gaal is arguably worse than David Moyes because of not because of the you know wow. the, the the sort of performances and the competitions that Lou Van Gaal won what he's brought to some of these players you see Ander Herrera play defensive midfielder in a two man pivot i just don't know what he's doing sometimes he's so square he's so flat he doesn't have that same energy and i think that's a big thing for united going forward you know you think of what Paul Pogba's done next in the manumatic how he was freed and how he was creatively so good you know directly involved in three goals in his short start to the premier league before injury that was more than any other premier league central midfielder he was running games then Marouane Fellaini comes in after Pogba's injury that's more of a player that's going to keep it simple then get into the penalty area but not mess about in the manumatic's zone what the problem with Ander Herrera against Huddersfield was they were, they were messing about in the same zone where you had two players doing exactly the same thing. And you just don't want that. What I want to see from Ander Herrera in the coming weeks, I want him to be aggressive. I want him to play as an eight. I don't want to play you know, two sixes. I want him to be an eight. I want him to play as more of a Paul Pogba than you know, playing as a Nemanja Matic next to him, playing the same thing, doing the same roles. I want him to get into the final third. I want him to receive the balls in between the lines. I want him to have a 67% pass accuracy. I don't want him to complete 90% of his passes because he's being too safe. I want him to try and break people down with his passing. I think that was a big problem for United and Herrera in central midfield. I mean, is that potentially contributing to what Tom Ince mentioned, Huddersfield's Tom Ince after the game? Uh, he talked about how Manchester United don't play with the same fluidity as Spurs. They build up quite slow. Do you think that's part of the issue for Manchester United? Yeah, I think that's one of the issues. I think United looked quite good um, in the opening stages of the game. They kept on hitting long balls to Lukaku, who, quite frankly, I thought had a really good game. I thought Lukaku 
made the best out of a really bad situation. United weren't getting the balls for players to feed him. You know, the only sort of chance that was great for Lukaku was that through ball that nearly went through from Marcus Rashford coming in off the left wing. Apart from that, it pretty much had enough. You know, he had to do everything himself. And you saw that for the goal that he created. An incredible bit of individual play. Hold up play on the halfway line, spinning down the touchline, crossing the ball with his left foot, and of course Rashford applying the finish. But again, he was so isolated. And I think it's kind of what Tomins is saying is the build-up is a bit slower. Spurs were very, very direct against uh, Huddersfield and were correct to be direct. United weren't direct enough against Huddersfield. And I think that's a slight change between the two sides. That Mourinho, he was direct against Liverpool. He should have been direct against Huddersfield. They're a similar sort of team in terms mm. of how they press and how they work the ball. And you saw how much space that Harry Kane got when he received the ball in the channels. United didn't do that enough. Of course, Lukaku was feeding off scraps. He did make those runs quite a bit. He was found by Matic early doors and got a good chance out of that. But there was no consistency there. Whereas you watch Spurs, they were consistently overloading the middle um, via going wide first. And that kept on happening. Deli Alli, Christian Eriksen. Of course, those two players have much better movement than what we had for United last yesterday. For Anthony Martial had a very, very poor game. Mm. Um, Jess Lingard was atrocious. You know, playing as a number 10 for the first time, I think, under Mourinho... Jesse Lingard as a number 10 moves wide, moves into the wide areas. What you wanted as a 10 there is someone to receive the ball and turn. You wanted someone like Christian Eriksen. Um, you didn't necessarily want a Deli Alley in there. Deli Alley for um, Spurs, obviously, was more of playing as a striking role in a way next to Harry Kane. Mm. You wanted someone attacking that space. And that's why I go back to my pre-game analysis where I said United should have played a 3-4, 1-2. it would have stretched Huddersfield's back two with two strikers because their fullbacks do like to go nice and high. Would have been wing back on wing back. I think it just looked up, worked a lot better, but of course, Huddersfield a great result. And I, you know, I quite want them to stay up. I think that was a, you know, from watching them over the last few weeks, I think they've been impressive, and they do lack a goal scorer with the the Portro in there and uh, Mune in there, and of mm-hmm. course, Moy scoring goals. They may they may manage it, you know. <laughs> Uh, let's talk a little bit more about Manchester United's tactics in a second. I do think it's interesting, though, how the narrative has changed in the past week around Manchester United. Previously, of course, they were looking so imperious, especially at home. But as we sort of mentioned here, there's a number of issues that are starting to crop up. The form of key players like Mkhitaryan, the injuries, the away form potentially as well. Do you think there's a danger now that they've lost momentum? I mean, they've got a tough run coming up, starting, of course, with Tottenham on Saturday at Old Trafford. And they've got, you know, these games have got to come. Um, United played, I think they've played bottom half sides for the whole Premier League so far. So they were expected to win most of those games and they did, to be fair to them. And the thing with United last season is they didn't win those games. In these bigger games, I'm not as, you know, as, as afraid. I think that Mourinho and his team do a lot of work for these guys. I think Spurs are going to be challenged in certain areas, but Spurs do look very, very, very good at the moment. Mm. The thing with Spurs as well, going back to that narrative point, you know, the point that I made to Lawrence McKenna in the pub on Saturday evening was... Um, in <laughs> the terms continuation of, England, of Thursday's the discussion. The continuation of yeah, Thursday's yeah. Condu- discussion. And Lawrence was agreeing with all my points. I just want to make that clear was right he? now. Was he, was he, he agreed he? with everything that I'm saying right He's now. not here to defend himself. He's, he? But he was agreeing though, Adam. You were there, right? Um, I'm not sure. I wouldn't necessarily I would say he was agreeing with every single one of your points, but do continue. <laughs> Yeah, so I think England, English, English media, English fans, the English football team are scared of being defensive. I think they're scared of taking a defensive style. Graham Soonis made some comments. Um, some of them were very, very, you know, arguably nearly racist. Um, a part of it, but the other part was quite interesting. How he was saying, you know, the Dutch do this, the English do this, the Italians do this. Mm. England should be a counter-attacking defensive country. That's what all of our great teams over the last few seasons in the Champions League have done. Going back to the Mourinho point of how United were defensive against Liverpool and were defensive and defended deep. Spurs against Liverpool defended, but you put defended a bit higher. Again, it's the same thing. You scored four goals. United didn't score four goals. 
the difference is to that is Spurs <laughs> scored early. Spurs scored early in that game, which meant Liverpool came on to them, which meant there was space to counter-attack. If that happened in the United game at Anfield, the same thing would have happened. United would have absolutely blitzed Liverpool but on the break. But is the fact that it didn't happen, that is the case in point, that Spurs set themselves up in a way that allowed them to take advantage and exploit Liverpool well, in those early stages. But then how, yeah, that's the only thing, the early stages, the early pressure. Yeah, fair enough, that's part of um, Pochettino's tactics that he's brought on this season, you know, the pressing and then the sitting back and defending, which I, you know, I really like. So but it is quite a, a similar approach. Spurs, how much possession did Spurs have um, at, at, at home? 38%, I believe. Exactly, like 38% possession. How is that different to Man United going away and having 37% at Anfield? Or would it be that there's... You're at home, Adam. Adam, you did that at home. You're <laughs> disgusting. You're anti-football. You hate the world, perfectly. Adam. You um, need to be more like Xavi Alonso. I appreciate what you're saying. Uh, I think you've been a little bit facetious. Um, I don't think just because Manchester United and Spurs set up in broadly similar ways that you can say they had the same approach and the same style. I think that's a false equivalency and doesn't allow the differences in their approaches and styles to be appreciated. Spurs set up combined with their approach allowed them to exploit Liverpool's weaknesses, whereas Manchester United's didn't. And the biggest reason why they, they could exploit was the space. And that is such a crucial part to it. It's so crucial. Game state is so crucial. If Klopp was a goal down at Anfield, he doesn't bring off, you know, do like-for-like -like changes, swap players in, swap players out, which he didn't change his system at all. He goes 4-4-2, which arguably opens them up to the counter-attack in a central way, which United had done so well against teams. Mm. And again, this last point about United and Spurs. So Spurs are seen as these heroes, really good attacking football. <laughs> United have seen the anti-gods, right? Who scored the most goals in the Premier League this season, Adam? Uh, Out of the two clubs? Manchester City. Oh, no, sorry, yeah. Manchester United, I, I imagine. Okay. Who's conceded the fewest goals out of the two clubs, Adam? Uh, Manchester United? <laughs> <laughs> it's all about the narrative, Dave. Um, this is the narrative about Mourinho in the big games, though, not overall. So, so when, Sky, when Sky finish off their talking about the game, uh, the lovely guys over there. The presenter finishes with Spurs are now joint second in the Premier League. Joint second. It's all about narrative. They're not. They're sitting in third. <laughs> yes, technically. Yeah, you're right, actually. Yeah. It's interesting. Though. We I scored mean, more goals than you, Adam. Listen, it's all about what's happened in the past week. You're only as good as your last game, Dave. We all know that in the Premier League. Talk to me about how you would like to see Manchester United set up on Saturday at Old Trafford because uh, for a Spurs fan what's really interesting about Pochettino is you're not actually quite sure how he's going to set up from game to game he does spring a few surprises keeping the formation against Liverpool at home as he did away at Real Madrid in itself was a surprise you know we're not quite sure how he's going to set up at Old Trafford but either way if you were Manchester United manager how would you approach this game? I don't think I think Spurs won't change how they're playing um, in the Premier League and if They've stuck with this, uh, you know, the three-five. No, yeah, it's three-five-two, three-four-three. The mm -hmm. hybrid between you no know, Ali, Eriksson, Kane, whether Son comes in or not. The thing I'd say about Man United is that they're going to probably sit as a back five. Um, I'd say it'll be similar to a midfield, Mkhitaryan off Lukaku and Marcus Rashford. I think it will be this three-four-one-two. I think the reason why Mourinho coached this back three in pre-season is for games like this. I think the thing with Tottenham that's different to most sides is their back three. They're all amazing. Davidson Sanchez is probably yeah, one of my favourite Premier League players. He's an incredible athlete. He's incredible on the ball. He's strong. He's pacey. He's powerful. He's got it all. Is he and the best defender in that back season. line? Incredible. What he, what he needed to do last season was work on his decision-making, not, not be too rash. For mm. Ajax last year, 
he had moments where he'd, he'd get really giddy and he'd, he'd go to the ball and he'd press the ball and he'd, he'd leave uh, delete all alone, all at sea to cover a massive space. That happened quite frequently in the, the semi-final of the Europa League against Lyon. It happened in the, the tie before. I can't remember who they played, but mm. I think it might have been Schalke. Similar thing where Ajax conceded a number of goals. But playing in the back three, one, he can do that now for freely and he knows he's got two centre-backs. Two, he's not even doing it. That's the really incredible thing that he's not even there's there's no there's no silliness to his game anymore. There's no poor decision making, and it's incredible coaching from Pochettino. I think that's what we've got to say here is that Pochettino, when he has a talented player, a talented centre half especially, has turned him into a world beater. And mm. I think he can, can you know one of the moments that really shone for me against Huddersfield Town when Spurs played them was a wonderful like sliding tackle. I think I've mentioned to you this in the pub, Adam, when we were having a few uh, Guinnesses. You know the wonderful slide on, sliding tackle on the cover, using his pace, using the length of his leg to get round. Great technique in the sliding tackle, getting himself out of trouble. I knew he had that before, but it's just all basically his weaknesses have gone at Spurs. It looks at the moment, and for Man United, I wouldn't want to go near him. I, you know, I'd try and avoid him. I'd be trying to pull the tongue and pull out of out of position and not really dealing with Sanchez. Is that what they need to exploit then? Because if Pochino does set up in this sort of five-three-two formation, or you know, it's obviously varied. Do you think there are spaces to exploit potentially? If not, the centre backs behind the the wing backs behind Serge Aurier, mm. always played left back. Kieran Trippier on the right. There seems to be a lot. Of, there is space that can be exploited. I think. I think your. Two, I think your two wing backs. If you you played up against, you know, you have got Tony Valencia. I think that's a great going to be a big battle. Ben Davis, Tony Valencia. I don't think Ben Davis has had any real competition, um, barring the Chelsea game, you'd say, um, where he's got like a direct opponent that's, that could cause him problems. I think Ben Davis and Kieran Trippier have pretty much had a free reign of the flanks because the Spurs system has been so good. But what I potentially would, if you can pull Sanchez out, if you can get Mkhitaryan playing behind the two forwards, the two forwards split, and you can try and coax Sanchez out of that position, that could be a way to do it. But it's difficult because I think he's different this season. I think he's very, very good this season. Mm. Arguably, what you want to do in this game at the moment, you want to play for the draw. Wow. You want, you, you want to really? Do that. Spurs are in incredible form right now. Harry Kane is in incredible form. He scored eight goals in the last like month. Yeah. He's, you know, he's, he's in incredible bad. form. He scored four braces. And especially away from home. Harry Kane scored six of his eight goals away from home. The, mm. Spur, the Spurs sit deeper. They open up. So it could be quite interesting if United sit deep, Spurs sit deep. Could be a bit of a stalemate, cagey game. Yeah. Um, and arguably that plays into United's hands. I, th- I think that's what I'd expect. Yeah. Well, let's see what happens this weekend then. Certainly stuff for Manchester United to work on ahead of that game. Um, thank you very much for joining us, Dave. Enjoy the move. Hope it all goes smoothly. Enjoy the move. Well, you know. <laughs> You're a bit of a best. joker, aren't you, mate? Okay, good luck, I should say. <laughs> yeah, sweet. Bye. Right, part three. Let's talk about the best awards. Very exciting. Uh, maybe, sort of. It was happening in London tonight, Lawrence. Uh, Cristiano Ronaldo was named the world's best male player uh, at the gala. Um, do you get excited about this sort of award ceremony? It's, it's hard for me to do so because the best is now different from the Ballon d'Or. The Ballon d'Or had a certain yeah. allure about it. It was quite a cool-looking award. The, the best awards don't look great plus they're sort of voted for not only by the the players and the coaches but also does it stand for something what the best yeah what b-e-s-t does it literally just mean yeah the best yeah it's just really it's just a bit flat isn't it i think that's a little bit it's sort of like what what should we codename this operation i know the best it's just not can anyone think of anything better it doesn't sound as it doesn't sound as cool as 
Ballon d'Or, does it? I mean, it's just it's got nothing to it. Some some people are um, boycotting because they believe that um, Ballon d'Or is the purest form of football award. Hey, I tend to agree. This is voted for by player and coaches. That's twenty five percent of the uh, of the votes. Managers, or as you put it, pre-record idiots. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, you've shown me up there. Uh, yeah, idiots. The player and coaches of the national teams, uh, managers, select journalists, and for the first time, an online poll of fans. Each accounts for twenty-five percent of the total. So forty-three percent of voters backed Ronaldo. I don't like an award where fans can vote. I know it's more democratic. I think there's a, a good idea, really, the essence it? behind it. But you don't want the fans voting for it. You can twist it. You can. You well, can the fact is, it's also not more democratic because it's not a global, like you know, <laughs> yeah. is this geo locked? Is it? You know, uh, yeah. It's basically about the fans that find out about it, and then you're relying on certain forums or whoever to go vote. And really, it's not a very scientific way of thinking about it. But yeah, I'd rather have an expert panel. You know, what do people know? People like Coldplay and voted for the Nazis. You can't trust people. Was that from Peep Show, I think? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, do you, do, you, do you read much into these awards? Lawrence, I mean, Cristiano Ronaldo won again. Does this mean he's level with, with Messi on Best Player of the Year awards? Does this even the same thing probably, anymore? Does this count? I think he's got to win the Ballon d'Or in order to be on level terms, doesn't he? I don't know. It's all very confusing. It's, I mean, I suppose it's, it's always nice to win the best awards. Um, is, is perhaps is, maybe it's named after George Best. I'm just, I'm still just trying to understand. I mean, it just doesn't. It uh, to me, I think there are some people boycotting them. It, it seems to be a bit of a rebrand. It seems to be a bit of a brand exercise. It comes across a little bit cheesy. It comes across a little bit sort of well, you know, we couldn't really think of anything better. We needed something to be able to uh, keep players interested and involved, so we just came up with this. At the same time, it's a great point of discussion. Mm. Um, I still sometime, somehow think that FIFA Team of the Week is slightly more of a reward for some players now than... Um, <laughs> yeah, potentially. Michi Batshuayi was absolutely delighted. Maybe on the cover of FIFA, those sort of things. Yeah, he, I mean, he was suggesting Ishbia this week, yeah, which has this real... I mean, you're talking about teams of the week there. The, the World Eleven was announced at this awards ceremony, again voted for by players, I believe, the, the national team captains and coaches. Uh, once again, perhaps case in point that these awards don't mean much Nico uh, an interesting team that was picked a few questionable decisions we've got Buffon in goal perhaps that's not so hard to argue with. we've got a backline of Dani Alves Sergio Ramos Bonucci and Marcello in midfield we've got Modric Cruz and Iniesta which seems a strange one especially when someone like Isco has played so incredibly this year and up front of course we've got Messi Ronaldo Neymar where's Harry Kane you know there's so many question marks over this team is there not uh, it's funny that you say um, I'm just laughing at the fact that you mentioned Harry Kane but uh, it's funny that you mentioned uh, Buffon being sort of a, a difficult one to argue with because I think I would argue that one <laughs> please Although, do, you, please know, do. Um, you know though Juventus went to the Champions League final I think that's the major reason that he was in there and there are many professionals that do like this guy and he is a very likable guy I think there's still there's so much of that system that, you know, the defensive system of Bonucci, Barzagli, and Chiellini uh, that Juventus has been so good at for a number of years now that have kind of aided his transition into the the latter stages of his career, where if you look at, I think Casillas is still like on a similar level to Buffon. It's just that Real Madrid has 
always played this like extremely volatile style of football where you know they kind of ask a lot of their defenders and their defensive players especially their go- their goalkeeper and he just kind of sort of unceremonious like yep you're off to Porto now um instead of Buffon who had the you know pleasure and, and ability to stay at Juventus because of the defensive system um that they've been so good at for the past couple of years so I would argue that he doesn't necessarily warrant a place there but there aren't too many players that I would really argue with as you mentioned uh Iniesta is a weird one he didn't even play that many games in La Liga and obviously Barcelona didn't do that one in the Champions League so it, it's a weird one like like Lawrence mentioned it, it's just sort of a weird thing to name this award or this series of awards the best um you know, as as far as the FIFA Pro World Eleven goes, I think this is a pretty accurate representation of the best players uh, right now. And the, obviously, the way that the best players dress is key to that. Yes, definitely. I mean, I, I'd even disagree with the uh, would you disagree with the Puskas Award, Olivier Giroud winning, um, as we've seen in the past week, the score of many great goals he won for his scorpion kick against Crystal Palace, that little flick. I think the other one I liked in the final three was um, I think it was a goalkeeper. Uh, I can't remember his name now, but it was a goalkeeper who scored an overhead kick. That was in the final three. That definitely should have been. I don't know. I don't know how. uh, Was it in South Africa or something? Yeah, something that just looked incredible. It's just like, like come on, you've got to give it to the goalkeeper, surely. How did did Mandzukic's Champions League final goal not win that one? I assume. I don't know if that will be in it next year, maybe. Maybe it was just. Because they they released this list, I think, uh, a while ago. I don't know if that was even in the conversation. But. yeah, there you go. Case in point. If that wasn't in the in the running, then there you go. There's the issue. Um, I don't quite get how they don't have him manage to do things so long. We have modern technology. Like you don't just have to vote with paper. You could we just have literally the technology. vote electronically. Yeah, it's not hard. Um, shall we? Do you move? know in the best awards for the coach, who was the one person to give Jose Mourinho five points? Duncan uh, Brendan Rogers. Oh. Duncan <laughs> Castles. <laughs> He's got a vote, has he? He has. Oh my has god! Pressing. Really. Wow, I didn't realise he Duncan was that serious a journalist. They should just rename it the Ballon d'Or, some just to really annoy people. Yeah, right. yeah. Wow. Uh, Zinedine Zidane, do we do we unanimously agree? That yeah, he, he got most the of the first player we, yeah, to yeah. win the Ballon d'Or and Coach of the Year, apparently. Maybe because this ceremony only started up a few years ago, but that was apparently Ballon the start that was doing the round. Um, we probably should begin to wrap things up. We're running out of time. Is there anything else? Any of you would like to discuss concerning this weekend's action? Any burning topics? I uh, I watched Napoli versus Inter this weekend. Talk to us. Talk to us. Um, it was the meeting of the two, the two only the two left uh, perfect teams in in Europe, or at least the top five leagues. Um, it was a really interesting game, really entertaining game from Napoli, as as any game with Napoli will be. Um, they created a lot of chances in the beginning, but I think Samir Handanovic, uh, Inter's goalkeeper, really kind of single handedly saved Inter. They didn't create that many chances on their own. I was you know, pleasantly surprised with how Napoli were able to stifle the 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 service to Mario Cardi, given how dangerous he can be and and how complimentary I've been of his abilities in the past. But it was a difficult one. Obviously, it was a nil nil draw, so both teams are still technically perfect, but um, in terms of no losses. But you know, I, I think this is a game that Napoli can feel sort of hard done by not having won. Um, but hopefully, you know, this was a really tough period for Napoli because they played Roma uh, earlier. A few weeks ago, which they won that game, uh, and then they played Manchester City, and then they played Inter. So really, three high quality teams, uh, and and they came away with it pretty pretty decently. A win, uh, a draw, and uh, a loss. So uh, hopefully they they continue to to 
have this good form and this title-winning form into the next season because, like I mentioned, I, I think they deserve to win a Serie A title. The one thing I'd like to mention from the weekend, changing tack slightly, is I don't know if you guys have seen the interview given by the Everton fan who was pictured basically yes. entering a fracas uh, with Everton in the Europa game. Uh, Europa <laughs> yeah, League game fracas. Oh, interesting. Well, he's probably correct. Um, Sound like his lawyer. Yeah, but he was holding his three-year-old as he as he did it. He broke his silence this weekend. Uh, did you see the interview that he gave of the police? I wanted to give you some of the, the quotes because they're they're quite brilliant. It's, it's part. It of was, it was a, a massive exercise in not taking responsibility. Yeah. So yeah, <laughs> he starts off by saying, "I'm ashamed of what I've done. I already know. I'm not a fucking dickhead." Uh, <laughs> He then accused the players of putting his son in danger by swinging their arms and added, they're supposed to be setting an example as professional athletes. He also claimed Everton bore some blame for leaving open a gate, which meant to keep fans away from the pitch. I put myself and my son... He then then painted a drawing of himself as a horse and him (laughs) bolting and him being like, should have closed the gate. But <laughs> my favorite, he goes, I put myself and my son in a dangerous position by taking my eyes off the ball and get carried away, getting carried forward with the other fans. Before I knew I was through it, I was through the gate, which should have been shut. Everton should have provided adequate security. I knew I put myself in that dangerous position. It was not intentional, but I'd been too concentrated on screaming abuse at the players for being shit. And before I knew it, it led me down there. And then I was like, fucking hell, what's going on? And it looks the way it looks. So there you go, as Chris says. He's really given. He's really given like a classic manager's non-committal reply there, isn't he? He's like, he's like, you know, the lads will be in there; they'll be disappointed, and uh, you know, we, we've all just got to pick our heads up and go again. Well, you he, won't go again. Do you know why? Because you've been banned for life. <laughs> he then he's insisted. Have a, a wonderful childhood. Yeah, I've got. I've got. I've got to admit, it does. It, I mean, obviously. You know, we've been talking over the past week as whether fans should get banned for certain actions. You know, whether. Uh, you know, the elements of sort of racist chanting within the game, those sort of things need to be punished. And I think it, uh, I, I do feel a little bit sorry for this guy because, it, you know, obviously, obviously yeah. he's a football fan who's very dedicated to the cause. He's obviously gone too far. He's obviously been swept away in the moment. And I think I feel sorry for him that he's been, that he, obviously this is a real passion for him. I don't know whether the football's the passion or the fighting elements, the passion, whatever it yeah. is. He has now, but he's lost something now. He's got, or he's cost himself something, which mm. is clearly really important to him. Oh yeah. Um, and this is also clearly a really big bonding point with his own son. And I think obviously, um, in many ways, has cost his son a lot of things as well because he can't go to a football. I think he can go to Goodison Park now with his son, and there's something oh, yeah. really quite tragic about that. That for something for something so stupid, he wasn't maybe given a chance to reform, or wasn't you know offered some idea. You know, just the instant ban does seem like quite a really harsh discipline sad in a way uh, I agree with you it's definitely sad when you look at it in that light but at the same time he hasn't helped himself and I think this interview demonstrates that he well, doesn't he's not quite a have a grasp yeah he doesn't have quite a, a grasp of, of exactly what he did wrong and he's refusing to sort of take the blame which is usually quite essential when you're uh, trying to apologize I, I, but I, don't, I don't know though it, was that do you think it's an official interview or he's just sort of been in the car and someone's <laughs> mate you know did did that what happened he's oh, I lost my head mate you know I, I, I'm not a dickhead he's fi- he finished the by insisting he's been made a, he's finished by insisting he's been made a scapegoat he compared the ruckus to an attack on a fan by Manchester United striker Eric Cantona Cantona ran off <laughs> Cantona ran off the pitch gave a fan a kung fu kick in the chest and I'm the worst thing in football are these people deluded so there you go uh, always a good way to, to relate it back to Manchester <laughs> yes uh, speaking of deluded 
uh, make sure you check out part two of the podcast with Dave as we talk about Manchester United. <laughs> I'm joking, guys. I'm joking. Jesus. That brings an end to part three. Went, went for the jugular podcast. there, Jesus. It's just a bit of banter, as Richard Keyes might say. I hope um, for your sake you just did that link without realising what you were saying. <laughs> guys, thank you so much for listening. That brings an end to the weekend review until Thursday when we'll be back with a little Carling Cup it's not called the Carling Cup anymore what the bloody hell is it called Carabao, Carabao Cup. Cup yeah the League Cup Carabao Cup it's the League Cup we'll be back with a little similarly intoxicating liquid yeah we'll do a little Q&A as well as always on a Thursday and we've got a lot of reviews this week so we'll be able to do a whole of the week my emotional blackmail really did work uh, until then Lawrence where can the good people where can the whole where can the listeners find you Oh, go to Lost Cast. L O Z C A S T. I love it. Nico? You can find me at Nico underscore O Morales. And Twitter. Chris? Stood behind a closed gate in a football stadium. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with your son in your arms. Guys, thanks so much for listening. Uh, we'll see you on Thursday. Until then, enjoy the League Cup action. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.